Okay, let's go ahead and pull it together. Well, again, welcome. I want to uh, greet you all. Uh, we have two tables for those who are on the video. We got four, a total of four folks checked in with us here. We got two tables here, one over there that you can't see, but we're here to greet you as well. Um, what'd you guys come up with? You want to start here? Number one. Number one. Uh, it's not fair. It's not fair. <laughs> so is the question not fair or the <laughs> what's not fair? Most people's objections to the doctrine It's not fair. It's not fair. That's that's a good short to the point answer. I think that's pretty I bet how many of you talked about that in your group? It's not fair. Yeah. Well, what'd y'all talk about? We didn't talk about it with that point, but we talked about it. It's not taught. And many, 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 many churches. So one ignore it. Most people's objections to the doctrine of predestination is not taught. They just don't yeah. know enough about it. Well, no, no. That was, we had that in another. Oh, okay. Uh, so, number one, what's your answer? Over here. The issue of free will. That the, 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 they don't see, it doesn't do justice to free will. I'm in control. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, but I would say free will probably gets to the issue of determination. You know, determinism This is, is our life and everything we do is determined and it diminishes the Imago Dei. I mean, let's be honest. It, it diminishes humanity. Okay, we're really just a bunch of cogs in a machine. It's it's a classic issue, and we're going to have to talk about that. So good. What about you guys? All right. Which one? The free will issue and determinism and all that. Okay, number two. I love this quote. You know, again, I want to keep us reminding that the, a, a course in confessional theology is meant to invoke worship. You know, it's it's what we believe and confess to be our faith and and our and our sacredness in that. And so, I like this quote: "Men treat God's sovereignty as a theme for controversy, but in Scripture, it is a matter for worship." And the question then being, what uh, what presupposition? Now, remember last week, two weeks ago, presuppositionalism and all. All right, so I'm getting you to think about that. What presupposition do you think explains this observation that we tend to, you know? argue about it and have controversy about it versus believe it and worship God about it. What do you think? Let's we'll start back there. How'd y'all answer that one? So you mean it's an offense to their pride? Yeah. Okay. All right, you guys. Oh, hold it. I'll let you go on. That's right. That's a good answer. That's so. That's pretty much where we're going to go, too, as you'll see. We'll, we'll fill that in a bit. Uh, what about you guys? What do you think? What's the presupposition there? Well, we were talking about the idea that human beings think their perspective is the dominant one. Yes. So everything rational to us yes. would be what we were looking for. Good. At the very core of the Enlightenment humanism, remember we talked about that and Descartes, and Descartes the Cartesian revolution, all that. The very hard is that the center of the universe got upside down, where it used to be God, and therefore we're expecting revelation, and a revelation that we have to that will expand our minds, not be reduced into our minds. The upside down humanist that comes out of Descartes, the, the Descartes kind of concept, is just what you said that we become the arbiter of truth. 
And now, we, if we can't conceive of it, it can't be true. And now we're going to debate it. That's a good one. Yeah. You guys, anything else? Mm-hmm. Good. And the presupposition is God is sovereign, then it's not a good thing. But for the in Scripture, it's always a good thing because God's sovereignty is for our flourishing. Okay, good. So and that causes us to work. Yeah, good. You know, Fred, what you just did is going to be the beginning of the syllogism, if you will, that we're going to talk about with respect to suffering and worship. In other words, if you start with the presupposition there's a God, then sovereignty is going to be a very good news thing in, in relation to our flourishing. But if you start with the presupposition there is no God, then this whole concept just blows up and suffering blows up. So I think that's good. Things are very different when you begin with the supposition there is a God and therefore, versus there is suffering and therefore, and you start working it back to do we believe in a God. It's, so either there is a God which will change your perspective of suffering, or we're arbitrating whether there's a God or not, so we start with suffering, and then we work out of suffering that there is no God. It's all presuppositional. So, anything else? I think there's a presupposition that God, Jesus, came in the world to condemn it, not to save it. Hmm. That people have this assumption that they're going to condemn God's, God's going to catch me. You know, and so with respect to the sovereignty why, issue, why, why he's got one against me. So what is the sovereignty issue? Tell me, link it to that quote then. Well, I'm, I would be I'm scared to death of okay. God that I thought was out to trap me I with got all you. these commandments and the things that I couldn't yeah. do. And, yeah. uh, I mean, he's getting at some of this stuff right. that I really enjoy. Good. So so <laughs> it's scary. It's the, the book, Your point is it would be scary. It's You're too afraid. Yeah, if yeah. I think that he's... Unmerciful yeah. and, and over demanding on what he expects to me. Uh, I don't want him having making all the choices. Amen. I'm in big trouble. Prayer. This was always a, this was something I've wrestled with a lot. I know this whole issue of prayer. So why pray if God's sovereign? Does it? I mean, what, what difference would it make? I mean, this is when I've, I know I've wrestled with. Who, who wants to start? Who's got some good thoughts about that? Yeah. Prayer is more for the edification of our own perspective and worldview with respect to God as opposed to positioning for God. So, so prayer is for, for us. us. Yeah, yeah. But now but that now I know that, that wouldn't I just, wouldn't I just well, okay. well, okay. So, so I don't, I don't need to pray, pray, really. I just, when I when feel, I feel need, need, I'll pray. pray. So it's not going to make any difference whether I pray or not, right? So, so if I'm, I'm praying, praying for my, for my children, children I'm, I'm having fun with my man, man here. You guys, you guys help him out. out. You guys are going to help him out because I'm going to come after him here. Come on, everybody help him out. So for me, the goal-oriented, practical kind of guy I am, I'm going to say, well, look, you know, it's not going to matter what happens to my kids, whether I pray or not. So I'll pray when I'm feeling anxious, maybe. It's a psychological thing for me. But, but somehow, somehow that takes, takes somehow, somehow I'm losing it here. I'm thinking, gosh, so it's just for me that I'm praying? It's not for, it's not for my kids? kids? 
it's not for the, my church or when I'm praying for all these prayer lists that I get. You mean I'm really just doing it so I can be edified by praying for them? I know you're not comfortable with that either, but I'm going to see. Come on, help this guy out. Yeah, go ahead, you. Okay. And it's a place where you get nourishment, teaching, peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a connection. Okay. It's both you and him go perfectly. You're in sync. It's a connection. It's a umbilical cord. It it feeds me. It helps me. It gives me peace. Yes. Me, 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 me. Good. So, but it helps me to know God. But it's still about me that I'm praying. I'm playing devil advocate around. Just y'all have fun with me now. Loosen up. Hold on. Let's get over here. What are you guys doing? Don't don't start stoning me yet, okay? But it sounds to me that I'm praying for myself. When I'm really praying, I'm praying for my kid, but no, really I'm just praying for myself and my own anxiety and my fear. And I'm praying because I'm feeling anxious and I'm, help- I'm, tr- I'm hoping God will make me feel better. That sounds real Freudian to me. I mean, that sounds like this crutch language that Freud talked about, that this is the opiate, the religion is the opiate of the people and... They just do it because they're weak and fragile. Come on, I'm on a roll. Somebody better interrupt me quick. Oh, Trevor would want to say this, would he? <laughs> so, so Andrew, through Gary... So, so I'm praying because if I'm praying for my son, um, in prayer, I'm going to be, I'm really looking for revelation. Tell me what's going to happen to my son. Well, that's what I thought you said. It's kind of God, God reveals his will through prayer to us. Who did I say, Trevor? Andrew? Who's, who's arguing with me here? Are all of you arguing with me here? Yes. Does prayer move mountains according to the Bible? You mean you mean it actually accomplishes something? What happened to all this psychobabble I was hearing about earlier? Excuse me, Janet. I mean, that... come on, man. Do you really believe that prayer actually changes things? Hmm. Okay. Hmm. You got me on that one. So it does change things. No, you got Trevor on that. Trevor, you all right with that? You're good? (laughs) But I thought God was sovereign, man. This is not making sense one bit. So God is sovereign, and he's waiting for me to pray. So it's really he just knew I was going to pray. So he's really not sovereign. He's just for knowledge. He just knows I'm going to pray. But he's waiting, and his whole life and action is contingent upon me and my praying. Oh, man, is he not perfect anymore? Uh, yeah, it's going to come down on top of me, aren't you? All right, this is fun. This is fun. Um, let's let's move on. We are going to actually address these questions, I promise. It's going to come out. But before I do, a little commercial break. Um, so you, you noticed in the handout, probably, if you looked at it, there's some Calvin readings, or and it's every week. Um, this is the, the numbers. You're going to see some, um, and today, maybe in the other ones, you're going to see some page numbers. 
And that's taken out of this one, the uh, beverage uh, edited version. It's not the version I, I would recommend, even though it's in our bookstore. Um, and even though we'd make money off you, no, we wouldn't make any money if you did. Um, it, it, it's a one volume, though. And it's, it's a little more wooden. It's not nearly as beautiful and poetic as McNeil. McNeil's the editor I would recommend if you buy a, a hard copy. It's a two volume set, and it's just stellar. It's beautifully, beautifully translated. Um, and just while I'm at it, uh, but I wanted to clarify in case you saw those numbers and you're getting frustrated. How do I, how do I look up those numbers and where, where is that? That would be in that version, but it corresponds to the readings that I gave you that doesn't have numbers because I didn't want to give you those numbers except for this one that came in. Um, you know, if you're looking for a, what I would say is a contemporary Calvinist slash theology, um, I would recommend, uh, of course, some of you know him. He was in our church for a while, Michael Horton. Um, this was um, the the this was written for lay people. There's another one uh, in there. He's got like a seven volume set, and there's another one volume set that's a little more academic uh, that, that's over there as well. Now I say it's written for lay people, but I'm, I'm going to assure you it's 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 plenty deep, um, and you'll enjoy it. There is a study guide to it. But if you're looking for one good modern A. A. Hodge esque kind of a theology. Now, this is not going through the Westminster, though he'll allude to it. He's a URC, uh, CRC kind of guy, which will probably be referencing more of the Heidelberg. Um, but it's not a confessional theology per se. It's more of a systematic theology, but it's very confessionally written. Uh, Mike is a very good theologian out at Westminster West, and that's his book. So um, that's just for your entertainment. Joanne, would you mind praying for us? Mm. We just ask for your love and grace to kind of come in and meet with the room as we share with each other. Um, and give us ears and thoughts and concern mm. about what we believe about what we're trying to do. We just ask for your enlightenment, um, your care, and your, your grace to find us things that we share and where we can. Amen. Thank you. So when we this here we are. We're, this is this is what everyone expects us to talk about in a Presbyterian church, you know, predestination and sovereignty and decrees of God. So here we go. We're, this is that lesson. We've already talked about it uh, indirectly when we started talking about God, didn't we? But um, let's just begin. You have it up there. The uh, go ahead and put the uh, handout up there. There we go. And if you want to pull it up yourselves, or I don't know if you bring in hard copies, but it's always helpful. So um, what I want to do is just, just here's a passage in Isaiah. I form, it's pretty, a nice statement of the gist of what we're talking about here. Um, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. I mean, you know, that's pretty simple, but that's basically the point. All things I do. Um, what does that mean? In what sense is that true? Um, we've already talked about this. Uh, there's no doubt uh, my my uh, issue with the Packer quote would have been something to the nature of what I'm going to talk about this in the sermon. It's interesting. It's unbel- It's uncanny how many times when I'm preaching, uh, you know, it's as if God just builds this whole narrative around it during the week. 
And as it happens, I'm studying Esther, and it really does, the name of the, the sermon, you'll see it obviously Sunday, is God is way bigger. And, and, and I think at the heart of that Packer part, uh, passage, and I say this to uh, kind of forewarn you, and I might even read a, a, a quote that I have in the uh, bulletin for you in a minute, but you know, I think at the heart of this issue is what I think Joanne said, uh, I think you kind of alluded to it. I mean, everything you said, you guys said was great and, and truly great. But, um, but is this, is our God big enough? You know, is he big enough? And, and this is going to challenge that. This is really, this study is going to challenge the bigness of God or, or the smallness of God in our mind and in, in the way we think. Uh, there's no doctrine I think I can think of that more illustrates just the absolute profound bigness of God than this doctrine of sovereignty. Um, and so it's it's going to expand us. And for those who have faith, whose dispositions have been born again, it puts us it takes it makes us take our shoes off, and it humbles us, and we hit our face, and we worship. For those who are dug in in their pride. And their self-reliance and self-sufficiency, it's offensive. And I do think the presupposition is faith. At the end of the day, it's faith. Because only faith can conceive of a big God who, who exhausts our creational capacities. He is not a created being. We are. And so it's just, it, you know, as, I mean, to me, the illustration I gave two weeks ago, I think it was, or was it last week, uh, about the microscope and the and the uh, telescope, but just you know, to me again, God is bigger, and and everything about God, whether in terms of our compre- what we would comprehend comprehend about Him, His attributes, His nature, all of that. Think of it in that analogy of creation. We are created. We're part of this little round ball that we call Earth, and then the universe, and as far bigger as the universe and the universes and the whatever the other names are for the things that keeps going out there, is, as much as that's bigger than earth, is God is bigger than us. So when we start, and that's just a metaphor. <laughs> so when we think about that, then of course when we start to think about God's power and how that power engages us, it's going to just blow your mind, just like the telescope or the microscope. So with that uh, sort of introduction point, um, why don't we begin with reading uh, session, uh, section one of Westminster 3. Would somebody read that for us? If you have it in front of you, or you can read it from up there. Okay. Oh boy. Oh man. I just just can't believe how brilliant this statement is. Every word so carefully chosen. What what are some of the words that stick out at you here that that seem like whoa that that if we really slow down and read this this summation of what the scriptures principally teach about God, what sticks out at you? What are some interestingly nuanced language here that you see? See some nuance here. Okay, before time, from all eternity, okay. 
So now we're talking about a we're talking about a God that is not contained to time. Now, why would they have put that there? That was not just rhetorical flourish or poetic prose. That what was? Why do you think that's important? We're going to come to that. What does it mean that God is decreeing things, but it's outside of time? So what what would that disqualify? There is no time sequence of things going on here. It transcends sequential things. That blows your brain. I mean, so God is decreeing something outside of an existence where things that are decreed are in sequence to think after they happen or before they happen. You see what I mean? It's blowing your brain before you even got into this this verse. It's just blowing your brain. From all eternity. From all eternity. Now, what else? Outside to get any help with it. Okay. What do you see? What's the nuance here? here? The Holy Council of His own will. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. He's He's not needy. Yeah. Yeah. So So, and, and 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 that's right. And what does that phrase? So from all eternity, and whatever's going about to be said, it was done as it passed through his most wise, remember the superlative there, holy counsel. That's an Ephesians passage, that all things, can, you know, out of the counsel of God's will. So, so now I'm kind of going, okay, so you mean that car wreck? Yep. Passed through the wisdom of God. You mean this timing and that timing and this event and that event and this anxiety and that anxiety, this person, this person? Yep. <laughs> They're all in your life after it passed through the counsel of God's holy and wise will. All right, what else you see? Some other nuances here. It just, it just, well, you have to slow down on this one, don't you? There's a real careful nuance going on here. All right, so I guess prayer doesn't matter anymore. Now I'm playing that. You don't want me to go back there, do you? I can tell you don't. But yeah, he doesn't change. So you mean when I'm praying to God, it doesn't change his mind about anything? Now the scripture does, written from an anthropomorphic perspective, which most of scripture is, by the way, so don't do theology that way. You know, the sun rises and falls. Well, he, he doesn't mean to say that that's, you know, the way it all really works. He, he's saying from our vantage, it rises. From our vantage, we pray and things happen. And they do. And we're going to have to talk about that. But here we know that it's not, if you mean by that, that we changed his mind in all eternity. It's unchangeable. Whatever he's ordained. And then ordained. Now, that's a very important word. Because why do you think that word's important? Who, who wants to really take a, a, a brilliancy test? What, what's about to be said in this, in this passage that would make the word ordained pretty important? Very good. good. It doesn't say say he does all things. He ordains all things. And you're saying, oh, come on. You're getting real touchy here, Preston. You know, you're you're, you're splitting some atoms, right? But no, these are very important terms that are going to preserve some things here that Scripture teaches. So ordain is is back to the decree. It's back to the king who orders something to happen, and yet isn't the one that pulls the trigger, but I know, I know what you're going to say here. Now we're getting into trouble, you know, well, isn't the guy that ordains, are we really, are we going to hold responsible that guy that who was ordered to do it and under the, well, you see where we're going, right? But ordains important. Good. I'm glad you see that. 
Anything else? All of it. But yeah, you noticed, okay, back to your point there, Diane, that he's not the author of sin. Now, they clearly the confession is aware of the of the problems here. We get that, that you know, in, in our number one observation there. there are, these are the common objections. When we ask the question, what are the common objections? Here they are. Did they, it, didn't it cover it well? They weren't dumb 350 years ago. Neither is God the author of sin. That's a big issue. If God is sovereign, then how can he be loving? Nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. That's Calvinism right there. So anybody tells you we don't believe in free will, there it is. We believe it. Yes, in a minute. Hold on. I got a lot of stuff on that actually, but yes, we gotta definitely explain that. I appreciate that question. And nor is the liberty or now this is a really important one. Nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. Hmm. But rather and this is really crucial, established. So what, you might want to guess on what's happening there. Just getting your juices going. What is, what is free, free will, will in this, in this statement? statement? It's, 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 it's a second, second cause. cause. It is, it a, is cause. a cause, though. So it is a cause, but it's a cause under an or, the ordination or the decree of God. So let me let me try to just put it in perspective here. Uh, again, just following your your, your thing. Um, our difference then is that we do not consider the mystery involved in this sufficient to cause us to deny either the one or the other. In other words, we are okay with mystery. If the Bible affirms both, we confess both, whether they are reconcilable in our minds or not. So really the question again is, we're going to try to get our heads around it, and there's a lot more. I'm not trying to give uh, license to lazy minds here. I think that too often is the case. We have a whole brand of Christianity that just wants to be lazy, and, you know, Bible teaches, I believe it, there it is. And that's true, but we don't want to go into rationalism either, where we start saying, I can only believe it when I can rationalize it in my head. We want to say, let's go as far as the Bible will let us to go. But at the end of the day, we are a revelatory religion. Right, That means we base our beliefs on what's been revealed outside of time and space into our world versus starting from ourselves and working ourselves up. It's a deductive versus inductive. So read chapter, oh, I don't have it here, but someone have two, would they read two? Section two, we're just working through the statements here. All right. So what is he saying there? He just it's another common misunderstanding, right? That this is not, you know, uh what what some people would call quote four point Calvinism is this. Uh the and, and this is where a lot of people will say, you know, well I'm I'm you know I'm with it, you know, I'm all for it. Yeah. He he foreknows everything. I I'm with it. He foreknows everything. And this passage says, eh, no, we're we're not we're not gonna loosen it up here. No, it's not just that he foreknows it. He ordains it. He decrees it. Okay, so don't, so they're making clear, careful that you're not an Armenian here. <laughs> this is what that would be. 
All right, so I'm just kind of zipping through these so we can really slow down and talk, so we'll get there. Uh, paragraph three, would someone read that? And Lisa, you have my Hodge. If you could look at page 66 and see if I've underlined some stuff there, and you, I might get you to read it. Who wants to read? Yeah. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. Okay, there's that word. Ouch. Predestination. Uh, what, what is, what is uh, firm there? Do you have that? Do you see what I was re- referencing there, Lisa? Yep, yep, I think that's it. That is a beautiful summation of three points of view, historical points of view on the sovereignty of God and freedom. And what did you notice? I mean, the gist of what, well, here we look at Calvin. We indeed place both doctrine and God, but we say that subjecting one to the other is absurd. Uh, What is he saying? He's saying, in a gist, why does God know the future? Because he decreed it. And he decreed it backed with the very power that's ir ir uh, that's that's not challengeable to execute it. So God knows the future precisely because He is powerful to carry it out. That which He decreed before all eternity to happen. Now I told you your God's going to get really big here. This is blowing my mind. Just saying it again. I'm just saying, come on, really? I mean, God before all eternity decreed every jot and tittle. How could he possibly be that big? That's all it is. That's the only problem we have with this at the end of the day. It's just too big to possibly comprehend. Yeah, that's right. And that's exactly the point. God is really that incomprehensible. I majored on that last week. I majored on it, right? The incomprehensibility of God. It's not comprehensible. (laughs) And the scripture is filled with that. That he's not comprehensible. So I would be, in fact, so much so now that I'm doubting that I know God if I've comprehended him. That would be a problem. I'm I'm now in some kind of an idolatry. But I got to be careful. That doesn't mean then that I just don't know him at all, comprehend him at all. I do, and I need to make sure that I comprehend him as exhaustively as the scripture gives me to comprehend him. Why? Because otherwise I'm doing an idolatry on that end. So now I'm stuck with idolatry over here if I comprehend him, and I'm stuck with idolatry over here if I don't comprehend him enough based on scripture. So this is really good stuff. Now we are going to slow down, I promise. I know I'm just blowing your brain here. Um, Let's go down to number four. You notice that language that she just read, uh, this distinguishing between absolute decree and conditional decree? 
Which kind of decree is the confession affirming, and why is this affirmation essential to our doctrine of God? Well, it's kind of obvious. It's the absolute decree. And why is that important? Because there's no, no condition. It's not God changing his mind or God conditioning his will upon our will. You know, and so that's going to get, come up again in this issue of prayer. So we're going to have to talk about that. Huh? Yeah, in that regard, yeah. Okay, so now I have a big catch-all question, uh, number five. So, okay, we've got it now. We've got this. We've opened the can of worms. That's, this is what our confession says the scriptures principally teach. Um, now, we need to slow down and kind of play around with this for a while, and this is where I started quoting them again. But I like this little quote here. Uh, you know, paragraph three and five and those related to it contain that which many people find most objectionable about our understanding of Scripture. Uh, Professor Van Til, however, was prone to speak of Calvinism as merely more consistent Christianity. Now, I'm not trying to, look, I'm, I'm not a, I don't worship Calvin, and Calvin is not my rule of faith and practice, so, so it's, just use the word Calvinism as representative of the, of the Reformed faith, okay? So I could call it whatever, and Luther would be right along line with this, so would Cranmer over there at, in the Anglican tradition. This is not, you know, just Calvinism. We're just using that language within our little subtext here. But it's a much bigger, in fact, most of this comes, uh, most of the language, actually, we were talking about before, comes from St. Augustine. He wrote an incredible treatise in the 5th century on, on the predestination of man. And uh, just, it was huge. And it's thick, and it's heavy. And it, people have been studying it ever since. And it's even said, uh, I've heard it quoted that uh, John Calvin once said, everything I ever wrote, I could have just quoted again. <laughs> that wouldn't really be true. That'd be his humility. But yes, he, he certainly was very, very, and so are so many people, very influenced by uh, by St. Augustine, no doubt about it. He was, the man was, he was the Jonathan Edwards of, of the whole world is what he was. Um, so, so, but I like this little, what, don't you like that Van Til though? Look, look at what he means by that. For him, Van Til, who quotes this, all Christians affirm God's sovereignty over creation. I mean, there's no one, as he kind of plays around, no one says that a dog's anything but a dog, but except that God made him a dog. You know, God determined this, that this creature would be dog, Okay. And so they're just saying we're going to be consistent and we're going to apply that to everything. We're going to apply that to our salvation too. And it's really what he means by more consistent. We can't pick and choose where, we, where God is sovereign. Either he's sovereign or he's not. Either he's all-powerful or he's partial power, but he can't be all-power and partial power at the same time. It just, it's a logical impossibility of that. So it's sort of just simple. I mean, it's really a very simple doctrine in, in terms of understanding it. It's a horribly compl- difficult doctrine to comprehend it. Not understand it, but to comprehend it. Um, so basically, we just believe that that uh, then is related to either the Creator is completely free to do as He wishes with His creation, including determining solely of His own will whether immortality and even be offered to it, or He is not free to do so at all. And again, the Romans 9, we're going to look at it in a minute, is just classic for this. So here again, we have um, some scriptures. Uh, going back to chapter 3, let's just read those. Let's just soak in some scripture for a minute. Um, if anybody would, would mind, just let's take turns. Just somebody read some scriptures. Proverbs 16. Let's take turns. He made them for that. There's a there's a purposefulness in this statement, right? Keep going. Nine. Somebody else. Um, 
Okay, good. 9.23. Go ahead and read it again. And he did so in order that he might take known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. I quote John 3. We won't look at it, but of course that's this idea about being born again, and it makes the case that the Spirit is sovereign. He, you know... Well, who gets born again? Well, that's that's all according to the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. Who, he, he, the wind come blows and it goes where it pleases. Uh, there's no, you don't tell God what to do. You know, at the end of the day, and we're going to find out. This is going to be very crucial because how does someone believe if we're dead? Ephesians. I mean, this is all very consistent in Scripture. We're going to look at the doctrine of effectual calling that precedes faith. And so we're all dead in our trespass. That means morally dead. It's not that we're on a life support system. It's not that we can be, rehab, you know, we're sick. We're not sick. We're dead. Everywhere in Scripture it says that. We're incapable of living. Seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. They're not capable of it. And over and over the Scripture is going to talk about how these things have to be revealed. Corinthians, they have to be spiritually appraised, spiritually revealed. And so uh, this is so crucial. And when we start thinking about this idea of salvation and sovereignty especially, um, and note also Matthew 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise. Now, that's a very interesting statement. It's not that they couldn't comprehend it. You don't let them comprehend it. It's part of the curse against sin. Now, we're going to have to go backwards in that in a minute. And the intelligent and have revealed them by, to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The point of that is not to say, we talked about this the other day in our staff, in our devotion, we happen to read this. And, and the point of this is not to say that, you know, you know, you hear, it's often overused in our sort of pietistic circles that, you know, we must come to Christ as an infant, which means dummy down everything. That's not his point at all. If you understand ancient history, children were the least... They weren't idolized. They weren't romanticized the way we are today. Uh, children were not nearly as romanticized. There's a culture that felt comfortable, you know, uh, sacrificing them to the gods. They were really very much more of utilitarian, at least until they got older, because you'd, lo- you'd lose more than half of them. I know that sounds really crass, but it's just true. And so he's saying, look, even the least in our society, the least of our society will have access to this. And the greatest in our society won't, might not have access to this because it's God who determines. You see, and that's, that's the, what he's stating there. Um, and in Matthew 16, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We've got about four. I just went through about four chapters that's awaiting us. So really hold on and don't get too, too going yet on this. We're still wanting to focus just on the, God, the attribute of God of, that he decrees. And so then you look at this attribute of God as assumed by paragraph 4. And, of course, we're dealing with the whole issue of, of his immutability and his sovereignty again. Um, I'm going to move on here because I want to really get into some of this. Okay, here's that number 8. We kind of alluded to this number 8. You could be reading it as I talk. But, uh, again, because I, I do have some things I want to get to real quickly here. Um, to me, it helps to, to to start, go back to that first phrase in our first in the confession, that God is not created. 
that God transcends creation. That means our categories of time and sequentialness, space, that stuff doesn't apply to God. God transcends that. He his and so every problem I have with this issue of sovereignty and free will and you know decree it all gets into the sequentialness of it all. You know, this causal sort of thing that's sequential in my head. And so it's just remember that there's something about this that is speaking of a God who is not created. And then secondly, of course, we're going to learn about uh, our fallenness. And when we talk about free will, here's the irony. You're going to learn that free will was that was was the gift. You know, we were created in Adam with free will. But ever since the fall, we are born now with what's called original sin. We inherited, and, and I'll do that later. There's just when we get to that later, you make sure you maybe that idea of inherited. We begat, we were begotten in Adam as now no longer really free. We were, we were only, we did not have the freedom to do righteousness anymore. We were inherently evil. You know, even if there's common grace that is preserving many beautiful and noble qualities in the Imago Dei, the, the image of God, so sinners can do beautiful and wonderful things, but there's a moral capacity that has since the fall that was begotten to us by our covenant head Adam, our first covenant head Adam, such that now we are in bondage, the scripture describes it. We're not free, we're in bondage to sin. Have you ever heard that? You've heard that phrase, right? Luther, Martin Luther, he wrote the great book, Bondage of the Will. And he's making that same point, that we are now no longer free in the absolute sense. We never were free in absolute sense. We are created with the, with the ability to be free. You'll see, I'm going to summarize that in a minute. And so it's really important to understand that, that when we're talking about this God here, he's outside time and space, and when we're talking about our free will here, which we're going to talk about more in a minute, we are after the fall now. And so what does it mean to have freedom of the will? Well, real freedom is only when we are set free to choose, again, righteousness and goodness in God. And that requires a new nature to do that. Because we were dead. We weren't just sick. Um, you know, Charles Finney, who was, you know, Pelagian, would have argued, and he was a great Christian, and I look forward to seeing him one day. So remember, all these these little schools of camps, don't, don't start thinking of them as all non-Christians versus Christians. These are just the debates within our church family. You know, you got a rogue son over there named, you know, named Arminius or something. And yeah, he's my brother, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I love the old guy, but uh, but yeah, he he kind of got off base on this one. I want to say, you know, and that's how I understand this. And so, so yeah, but Arminianism has this idea that the Holy Spirit is 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 likened to to a, a lawyer who 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 is uh, working on my my um, mind. You know, he's trying to convince me. And then Edwards and others, all these other folks will come out and say, "No, man, you got this wrong. It's not the advocate lawyer." It's the recreator, the Holy Spirit, that the same Spirit that created the world. Remember the rock was hovering over the nothingness in the beginning? The same breath, the same Spirit of God that created the world has to recreate us. 
And so freedom comes only now by that recreation work. So now we, are, we actually have the freedom to choose righteousness. Even if in this life, waiting our glorification, we still have the ability, and we often, too often do it, to choose evil as well. So we're in a, we're in a tension. New nature, but old nature, simultaneous. But we do have been set free now with a will. So you, you are never more free than when you become a Christian is the point that we're going to get to four chapters later. But it's important to kind of keep that in mind. So that's just a little bit of a meditation. Um, and then let's read, somebody read up paragraph six. Yeah, yeah. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved of the United So what he just does is he, he basically mirrors Romans eight. Those who predestined or you know called or elected goes through that whole litany there. And it and it also notice reflects the chapter headings that's going to come up in Westminster next. So they're very careful to to do the order of salvation, starting with this doctrine that's going to now work itself through that Romans eight passage. Um, but what do you see there? I think what we see there is this, and again, just move because we are really going to slow down. What you see there is this. Uh, There's no such thing as, uh, as being justified without faith in Christ. That's, that's right. right. And there's, there's no, no such thing. thing as faith in Christ without. Well, well, before that, work backwards. I, I, was, I was rocking with you. You got to be justified. But, before, but to be justified, you got to be effectually called another word for that's regenerated that's that's the call of god that has the power to affect the call which is to change you with it and then of course back there it goes back to the elect who would get that spirit that's right and so um note also the train of saving activity which we just discussed which is based out of romans 29 and 30 does anybody have a scripture real quick they want to read that you may memorize it. Long time ago, but I'm not going to try it now. There it is. I just want to make sure you saw that this is actually coming from Scripture. <laughs> Not that you would doubt it. Um, let's. This is good. Now we're. Let me just stop, and I'm going to start moving into some really fun conversations here. But before we do, just conceptually, what's on your mind? Let's slow down here for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what does what does the idea of a call imply? That's right. 
it initiated from someone outside of us and calls us. So there's, and, and you know, theologically we distinguish between what's called the universal call and the effectual call. In other words, as a preacher, every Sunday I, I, on behalf of Christ and the church, deliver a call, an invitation to the whole world. There's no discrimination. It's the old throw the net out. And yet I know that within this universal call that we should never discriminate, the church never discriminates, we're not sovereign, we don't elect people, so we don't discriminate, we call everybody, universal. God, however, effectually calls. He, with the invitation to some, sends the Holy Spirit who rebirths them, Gives them a new nature, which enables them to go, aha, I believe. And without that spirit that affects them, there is no effect. It just goes out and hits dead, dead ears. So it's, there's an effect that goes with the call. And again, it's another way of thinking of regeneration. Good question. I love these kind of questions. Just clarify right now. Let's do it. Paul means that it always works. It always works because it's based on that divine election, sovereignty, and everything else. And the ears are open to all those who are effectually called. That's right. Make sure we got that straight. Okay. So let's just, now we get to have some fun a little bit, and then we're going to go back to the free will issue and, and some other issues. But first, um, some of you have heard me do this before, but I think, uh, you know, one of the great little debates that took place intercontinentally was between Wesley and Whitfield. Everybody know who they are? I'll say it briefly. I don't see everybody doing this. So these were two wonderful, godly men, both evangelists, both saved together in the Holy Club over in England. Um, dear friends, Whitfield comes over here to start an orphanage and to evangelize uh, the dead orthodoxy of America, while he's over there, Wesleyanism and the whole thing that came out of that, Methodism. Um, and they, they went in, and as they went in a little different direction when it came to this issue of sovereignty. And so here is a snippet. There's a wonderful letter, and you can get it, you can go online, I'm sure it's probably freeware right now, and read this beautiful letter. But um, this is a letter written back. Uh, but here, here's the way it, it works. It's the question of, well, how does the doctrine of predestination encourage evangelism and sanctification? I mean, if what we do doesn't matter, if that's the way you're going to understand it, which is not, then why would I even bother? Why preach? Why do anything? God, they're going to get it either way they get it. Now, this is going to get this is going to start a conversation that's really huge. Because it's going to be the same logic that you're about to hear is going to also be applied to prayer. And so I'll give you a little hint. Okay? And I'm going to use a word that's going to be used in the issue of prayer. Remember the little word, antecedent condition. Antecedent condition. It's a logical term, but you'll see it in a minute. So here it is. I love this little debate. John Wesley's all upset about this, this, uh, this doctrine of predestination stuff that he hears Whit- Whitfield preaching. If this be so, if there be an election, then is all preaching vain? Is it needless to them that are elected? For they, whether with preaching or without, will infallibly be saved. 
Therefore, the end of preaching to save souls is void with regard to them. And it is useless to them that are, are not elected, for they cannot possibly be saved. They, whether with preaching or without, will infallibly be damned. The end of preaching is therefore void with regard to them likewise. So that in either case, our preaching is in vain. Now, that is a wonderful and beautifully stated objection at the end of the day to a lot of, you could, you could insert in there a lot of things, prayer, uh, other things as well, right? And listen to Whitfield's response, and you really start to get the, this heavy, abstract theology that we've been doing is going to come alive to you in a minute. Remember all that stuff about second causes? Remember all that stuff that he ordains not only the ends, but also what? The means? Remember that? All right, here we go. George Whitfield. Oh, dear sir. What kind of reasoning or rather sophistry is this? Hath not God, who hath appointed salvation for a certain number, appointed also the preaching of the word as a means to bring them there? Does anyone hold election in any other sense? And if so, how is preaching needless to them that are elected when the gospel is designed by God himself to be the power of God into their eternal salvation? The gospel being, he's talking about the preaching of the gospel here in, in relation to that. And since we know not who are elect, universal call versus effectual call, and who reprobate, we are to preach promiscuously to all. Ah, I love that word. What does promiscuous mean? Huh? With abandon. Without regard, without restraint. There's almost a sense of promiscuously as in you're not kind of really supposed to, but we just can't help ourselves. We got to do it. Promiscuous. You know, you're going to be a cultural heretic to be an Orthodox Christian sometimes. Let me say that again. You're going to be a cultural heretic. Uh, the heretical imperative was a book that uh, I believe it was as the sociologist over at BU. Um, I took his class. I should know him. Peter Berger, huh? No, Peter Berger. I think wrote that. Yeah, but maybe Kreft did something with it too. But but but, um, but anyway, it's just this amazing um, idea that to be faithful as Christians, we're going to have to be willing to be culturally heretic sometimes. And I wonder if Whitfield wasn't sort of not not that he was reading 20th, 21st century sociologists, but but he had something about that, I think. Um, where did I lose my... Let's see, where is that? Oh, yeah. For the word may be useful even to the non-elect in restraining them from much wickedness and sin. So it's not to say, he says, that preaching the word to the unelect aren't going to have some benefit. It's going to make them more moral, maybe. It's going to restrain some sins. because It's going to be a means of common grace, is what he's really saying. However, it is enough to excite to the utmost diligence in preaching and hearing when we consider that by these means, some, even as many as the Lord that ordained to eternal life, shall certainly be quickened, certainly be quickened and enabled to believe. And who that attends, especially with reverence and care, can tell, but he may be found of that happy number. It is the doctrine of election that mostly presses me to abound in good works. I am made willing to suffer all things for the elect's sake. And that's a quote, of course, in Timothy. This makes me to preach with comfort because I know salvation does not depend on man's free will. But the Lord makes willing in the day. Notice that. The Lord makes willing. He is a good theologian. 
because he, 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 he's acknowledging that human will exists, but the Lord makes willing in the day of the power and can make use of me to bring some of the elect home when and where he pleases. Oh, that is such a beautiful transaction. And it just so explains, it takes the low, I'll tell you as a preacher, you know, it's, it's really important. It tells me, Preston, you know, be faithful. You know, if, if I'm an Armenian, if I'm a, a Finian, and I believe that the Holy Spirit's um, function is not rebirth per se, but it's to convince, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to devise all kinds of measures, all kinds of means to move you to make a decision. And we call that decisionism historically. You ever heard of the new measures? Anybody read any historical stuff, religious stuff in America? The new measures is a whole, I read the whole stuff with Finney. And it's, you know, you heard the anxious bench. You heard of revivals. You heard of uh, the choir. The choir was a revival technique to move you emotionally, to get you ready to hear the gospel. And when you were just up into a fervor, you know, then there would be the preaching the gospel. And then, then there's the anxious bench, you know, and everything from do you love your wife, come down to the bench. I mean, you know, yeah, man, I love my wife, I'm down there, you know. My wife's sitting next to me looking at me like this, are you going to go down there or not? You know, all kinds of, that wasn't quite that crass, but it was close sometimes. And now, again, Finney's my brother. I'm sure I'm going to love him. I wish I had his passion for the lost. Wesley was Whitfield's brother. And the way he ends it, by the way, is just very endearing. And by the way, when Wesley died, he insisted that Whitfield do his funeral. And he went over there and did it. So, so it's a really interesting thing going on here. But what you see here is for a church that believes this, it's one, one thing it will do is it takes away the tempta- at least some of the temptation to try to manipulate you emotionally or to sort of convince you. I'll never forget. I, I'll make it quick. But when I first became a Christian, you know, it was my freshman year in college. And immediately I got involved with Young Life and like you. And you appreciate the story. And immediately they enlisted me to go to Young Wendy Gap and be a counselor. And I went. And it was great. And I'm on a bus. And me and this guy had really connected one of these kids. He was just a really great kid. We would connected a lot. And I got on the bus now, y'all, y'all are going to laugh at this because you can probably see it too easily, and that's why I'm hesitant to tell you. It's embarrassing. I'm telling you, I got on that kid, and, that, and it wasn't mean. It wasn't anything. It was just so obsessively intense. I don't know where that come from. I'm never intense, and I'm never obsessive. But I'm sitting there, and I'm just sitting next to this guy, and I'm just, all my heart, man, we're having this conversation, and I'm just... Man, I'm trying to convince him to believe in Christ. And I, I just, I mean, that's my gift and that's my curse is I don't quit. I just don't quit. Just not in my DNA. And I'm there, and finally the young life guy walks up to me, taps me on the shoulder, you know, this young Christian, and I didn't even know what Christianity was. And he says, can I talk to you, man? He says, Preston, man, you just got to loosen up here. You got you to gotta walk away here. Give this guy some space. You know? Now, if I were a Calvinist, I, I would have known that. Let the word do the work. Be faithful. But I don't have to do all this stuff. And that's been huge. It's been huge. So I'm not compulsive or obsessive or intense anymore, thank God. Y'all are not supposed to laugh. I'm out of here if you laugh again. You just be quiet now. 
So you see, it's it's uh, it's it's really uh, an amazing doctrine. But what did you? Well, the main doctrine was so one. It, it presents it 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 prevents against excessive browbeating, new measures, emotionalism, manipulation, a lot of stuff. But the other thing it does, and this is now for the preacher's sake. I'm looking at these guys that are going to be preaching. Think about the weight that it feels and that now has been lifted. You know what? If you give them the scripture, if you just make it plain to them, that's all I got to do. You know, if, let the scripture do the work. And it's going to get you to expositional preaching, even though it's not popular sometimes. Just let the scripture, understanding, get them to the scripture. And so there's a lot of good stuff here. I won't go through what was Whitfield's source for motivation, evangelism, and biblical references to support them. This is sort of a nice little commentary that you can look at. Um, you know, and I'll just, I just literally, you can just see scriptures he's, he's using in this little response, and I give them to you there. So any questions about the question of evangelism and the sovereignty of God? Why preach? Because it's a means of grace. Yes, God has ordained this guy to be elect. But he's also ordained that he would be elect through the preaching of the gospel. Why? Because that's the way God will be re- receive glory for it. It was interesting when we talked about prayer. We, we were all focusing on the effect it has on us. And it does. It does. But the reason I preach, I'm, it, yeah, I preach, I'm talking now as a minister of the gospel, right? Certainly I preach to myself. I, I, I'm in office when I preach. And I, I know you may not believe this, but I really feel I'm being preached at when I'm preaching. <laughs> it really comes out like that. I, I can't, can't tell you how many times I'm moved while I'm preaching in my own self, and I go home and reflect on it, not knowing that I was going to be. It surprises me how often. So there's a sense in which you're detached, your person, your office, you're just doing your thing, and I'm in there going, oh, my God. And sometimes you see that probably happen to all of us when we you, – you, and I try to be fairly transparent about it. Some may not feel comfortable doing that, but I try to be transparent for you and just say, God, yeah, something just hit me here, you know. And it's true. But what I'm saying is I'm, – but, but I'm not preaching just for me, though. The office of pastor that God ordained in the church is a means of grace. And the preaching that Whitfield's talking about is for you. And, and the confidence he has is that God ordained that instrument. He chose that to be the instrument through which you would receive the electing decree of God. God elected you unto salvation. He's going to get it to you through somebody, but it's not going to be without preaching. And now the Mordecai that we'll see later to Esther is Esther. The means of grace have been determined by God. The, Israel's election has been determined. He didn't say it like this. It's all written, as you know. I hope you're figuring it out in a secular kind of way. But in so many words, Mordecai is going to say to Esther, the Lord elected Israel, baby. It's going to happen. And if it's not you, it's going to be somebody. Because he's going to preach the gospel to that elect person. So why do you preach? For the pure privilege of participating in the election power of God in someone's life. It's just an honor. It's a blessing to participate. Sure, why do you do doctoring? You know, I mean, why do you do nursing? Why do you do anything you do? It's there's an, at the end of the day, yeah, I'm going to save someone. I'm going to help somebody. I'm going to do this. But at the end of the day, there's other doctors. There's other nurses. And that's the point he's saying here. Look, I am motivated to preach, says Wesley, because I know it's going to work. It can't help but not work because of the sovereign grace of God. And it might work immediately. It might work 
later? It, as Paul said, some plant and the others reap. How many people have come to Christ through the preaching of the word, maybe in this church, through our pastors, or through you and your witness and care for them, and you're going to go to heaven and say, you know, and you don't, you don't see any of it. You don't see any of the fruit. But you get up and go, you are the one. I mean, I've actually, I'm sure you have too. I've had people now, because I've lived long enough in ministry to do it, where people came back that I had no clue God used me in their life. And I bet you can share those stories too. Because the word of God does not return void. And so that's what he's saying. And it doesn't turn void because God decreed that the word would be efficacious unto salvation to the elect. So this is an amazing doctrine, and uh, we can just jump right there. Why do you think we pray then? It's going to bring God. That's exactly right. We preach because that's the means through which when people are saved. Think about it. If they were just saved by the Holy Spirit, they just got regenerated and there was no content to it, there was no message to it, there was no directing them into that beautiful order of salvation that we just described that, in, that include the essential nature of Christ and all that other stuff that comes with the gospel, they would just have a, they would, it's no different than taking, you know, having a conversion. I mean, conversion is not unique, you know, to Christianity. Almost every religion has conversion in, in it. Hippies know what conversion is. It's just taking LSD. I mean, you know, so everyone has conversion stories. Conversion isn't unique. Every religion has it. What makes it a God-pleasing conversion and one that's into eternal life is the content of the gospel that is the means of grace through which this person receives the Holy Spirit and has a born-again experience, whether gradually, immediately, subtly, not subtly. There's all kinds of conversions in the Christian faith. But conversion is the conversion of the will that enables us to say, yes, I want it. I need it. And prayer is the same thing. So at the end of the day, Trevor, you just said it. Why do we preach? Because it glorifies God for people to be saved by the gospel. There's a passage, and I'm paraphrasing in here, I think it's, God is glorified by faith in Jesus Christ, or in the gospel, or gospel, something about the gospel. I have it on PowerPoint, and I use it all the time. I can't remember. You remember it? Anybody? The, the Lord is glorified in the gospel. Something like that. But the idea is that the gospel is the means through which someone comes to faith precisely in order that when they come to faith, God is glorified in this story. All right? And prayer is the same way. Why do we pray? Because God is glorified by in prayer, even as prayer, let's move to it. I'm I'm going ahead of myself. To go down to, we're just going to zip right all the way down here. And then go back. Go down to page Come on, it's in here somewhere. It's way down here. After chapter free will, I'm skipping over a ton of stuff. Applied to prayer. We're on page um, 13. 13, although if you if you copied that off a while back, then it won't be on your hard copy because I added something. But you got it in there, 13? L- listen to... Uh, this is B.M. Palmer. He was a 19th century uh, theologian, and he wrote a book, the best book I've ever read on prayer. One, because the first half is Christology, and it's the best Christology I think I've ever read, and then the second half is on prayer uh, in the name of Christ and what that means. But the, the first one, Charles Spurgeon, um, is, is well said, and, and when we think of prayer, 
Think about what this means. Uh, someone just read the first quote, Charles Spurgeon, if you have it in front of you. Joanne or whoever's looking at those hard copies would be at the very end. Almost at the very end of your... Yeah, it's all the way down applied to prayer. Asking is the rule of the kingdom. It is a rule that will never be altered in anybody's case. If the royal and divine Son of God cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot expect to have the rule of action in our favor. God will bless Elijah to send rain on Israel, but Elijah must pray for it. If the chosen nation is to prosper, Samuel must plead for it. If the Jews are to be delivered, Daniel must intercede. God will bless Paul, Paul, and the nation shall be converted through him, but Paul must pray. Pray he did without ceasing. Epistles show that he expected nothing except by asking for it. So is prayer important? Does it move things? Does it change things? Does it make things happen? Yes. Most of all, it changes us. It changes the world. I'm not going to put any most of anything. That's true, it changes us. It, amen, it changes us. It also glorifies God. And it also moves mountains. It heals people. It saves people. So but is it a prime, is it a first cause or a second cause? It's it's a second or it's a means. It's like does preaching save uh, save people? No, preaching doesn't save people. God saves people by the Holy Spirit. But preaching is the means of grace to do that. So this is what Palmer's going to talk about. But he's going to use some highfalutin language to do it. So let's see his. Who wants to read that one? And you'll want to read it slow. <laughs> read antecedent condition I mean look at that line that they antedate the prayer the divine being but they antedate the prayer so that he's talking about I mean there's so much in this passage but first of all how many of us had this conception if prayer is me changing God's mind what am I going to do I'm, I'm going to prayer is going to become a works a works principle it's going to become something I'm doing to try to move to make God do something and sometimes the way we pray is we do it as if God's up here holding hard, and you say, man, you ain't praying hard enough. Pray harder. Pray harder. Pray harder. Pray harder. Ah, okay, I'll let go of this great blessing. You know, and I find that to be objectionable. It could, yeah, it could. That's right. And so we're in, we're in some touchy ground here. I'm, I'm a little, some, there's been, you know, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Could, could, does that mean that, that I'm on my knees sweating blood for five hours, you know, ten hours? Or is it is it a life filled with a conversation with God and praying always, every moment of the day? I'm just continuing this, continuing in the presence of God. I, it could be both then. I, 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 I don't want to diminish that there's 
there's seasons of intentional and focused prayer. Uh, maybe, you know, the whole issue of fasting comes up, and we do not have the time to uncover that issue. Fasting is a really complex issue uh, that has to be read through redemptive historical context. But yes, prayer and fasting. Um, what is, you know, what's happening there? Is it is it that God is, there's something a little not right, though, if what you have in your mind about it is that there is a reluctant God up there, and, you know, for him to save my boy or girl or whatever I'm praying for, I'm going to have to really work on this one. I'm going to really have to work for this. This, this is a big one, so I'm going to have to work for it. Does that sound right to you? It certainly could be, yes. It certainly could be. And it, it and it's a natural thing. I mean, I think in some ways we pray with, you know, if, if something is deeply um, bothering me or something's deeply affecting me, then I am praying. And I'm praying without, you know, I'm praying diligently even because it's, it's true to my nature right now to do that. So it's not wrong to pray long and hard is what I'm trying to say. Or it's not wrong to have the discipline of prayer and to have a prayer time every day and, and prayer times every day. These are all potentially very good things. But be careful because what, what this is, if we're not careful, we stop to forget that God is sovereign, that God delights, delights in blessing his children. He is not having to be... He, there's not the hands wrung from the reluctant hand of the divine being that's going on in this prayer. It's more a prayer is a communion with God. It's it's a it's a fellowship with God and communing with Him and bearing our souls with Him and bringing our petitions to Him and crying out. And sometimes our prayers are the most, in some ways, the most genuine prayer, the least articulate. You know. I mean, I, I know in my life, I've said it before, but there have just been most motions when all I could say. And every time I tell a story, I started crying because I know how me, it was a deep, deep, deep hour in my life. Three in the morning. And all I could say is, just have mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy. I put myself in your mercy. And that's the way the prayer went. It was just mercy, mercy, mercy. And then I give myself to your mercy. That's about the whole thing. And it went on for hours. Sitting in a bed. And that's all it was, you know. And so, but it was not, you know, to me, I reflect on that because this tells me it was not because I was trying to convince God. It was just because I was communing my soul to God. And I think prayer is, so, so, so there's nothing wrong is what I'm trying to say. I don't want you to feel like, oh, God, you know, I'm not supposed to pray. I'm not trying to say, quite the contrary. We're saying pray. But don't pray in a works righteous way. Don't pray as if God is not sovereign and you've got to, and he's waiting for, you know, how many dollar bills worth of prayer do I need to put on this altar before you're going to do something, God? And it's like we're just sort of, you know, dishing it out so that God will do something. No, prayer is a means of grace. Like the sacraments, like the ministry of the word, it's a means of grace. It's how God has chosen to, to work his will into our life that he might be glorified in that will. So why do we pray ultimately? Because it glorifies God. In, in whatever comes to pass, prayer glorifies God because it attributes it all to him. And so prayer, we glor- it glorifies God in our salvation. 
when we preach the gospel. Prayer, it glorifies God in whatever comes to pass because we pray in his name. And we attribute all things to his will. And so this language of antecedent condition, it's, he, he, he makes it out. We're going to have to stop, unfortunately. And we'll, we are going to pick back up because we didn't do suffering, but that's okay. I kind of wondered if we would. Next week is on Providence, which is almost a, it's a really important doctor. We're going to talk about the, the spirituality of contentment, and we're going to talk about the spirituality of, of suffering out of this doctrine of providence. So it, it fits nicely. I wasn't sure which one I'd want to get to. But back to the prayer and leave you with this thought because it is that we're out of town, unfortunately. The idea of the antecedent condition is that it, when you are moved in the manner that you are moved to commune with God, prayer itself is, a, is almost like a sign to God, from God, I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, it, it's as if I could say, I'm using this preaching in prayer because I think you can, it's easier to hear the prayer. If you are hearing the word of God preached, I can rightly say um, that could be a sign that you're about to be saved. Not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, but ordinarily those who hear the gospel are saved. So if you're, if you're here today talking to people in our church, let's say, and you're not a believer, but you've been, for whatever reason, God is, and you've heard me probably say things like this over the last 20 years, and if you're sitting in this room, it's probably not an accident you're here. Maybe God's already doing something in your life. I can distinctly remember saying those kind of things. Maybe God's doing something in your life. Maybe you're here because he's intending to save you. Good news. So even though you're not going to partake of the table today, it's really good news that you're here because you're being saved. And we don't have to push you here. We're not going to do that. You've heard me say that, I hope, right? And all, not just me, all of our pastors. You've heard us say that, right? No, we're not going to play that game. <laughs> Take as long as you want. Why? Because we believe the grace of God, given his sovereignty, is irresistible. It's irresistible. You're not going to be able to resist it. It's impossible. <laughs> so, baby, just try. Go ahead, Try. Now, if you really try, maybe you're not being elected. So there's a little catch-22 here. But the, you see the point I'm making. Any questions about evangelism and sovereignty of God, prayer? We did not talk about the whole chapter on free will, but you've got a beautiful uh, study guide here. Walk through it. It will help you do some things. We're going to actually, next week will be on predestination, like I said, and contentment and suffering. But it's such a continuation of this because all it is now is the decrees of God brought to bear upon the circumstances of our lives. We just, it's kind of part two. So it's a nice way to do it. All right. Um, any just one burning question or anything, a question or comment, anything you want to talk about? A lot of fun. I hope y'all are having fun. I'm having fun with you. Let's pray. Father, um, you're bigger. You're just big. You're bigger than anything we can possibly conceive and comprehend, and yet, Lord, we thank you for the grace that you revealed yourself to us. You condescended in words. You condescended in the body and the person of Jesus Christ that we might know you and understand you, if not fully, as through a glass dimly. And so, Lord, thank you for the revelation that brings us to this great and big understanding of you, that you are sovereign, and how that gives us such comfort to know there's nothing accidental in our life and to know that uh, you accomplish your will in spite of us.
We thank you, Lord, and praise you and worship you. In Christ's name, amen.